Good morning. Today's scripture is from Luke 10, verses 1 through 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So grateful, friends, we can pour out our hearts to the Lord in prayer. It's an unspeakable privilege. Uh, whenever something troubles you, to immediately go to the Lord. The center of the Christian faith is not a code of ethics or a system of doctrine or a political platform. The essential core of our faith, my friends, is a person, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God incarnate. That's that's why Christians, think about this, are called Christians. (laughs) Risk of stating the obvious, what what is a Christian? It's a disciple, which is just another word for a follower of Christ. That's why we're called Christians. He's the one who rules the world. 
and redeems our souls and, and commands our loyalty. And I've noticed, as I'm sure many of you have, that, that all kinds of Christians and non-Christians have all sorts of ideas about what, did, what it actually means to follow Jesus. So for some, it means living a decent moral life. I've heard that a lot. Uh, for others, it means you're somebody that goes to church. You do what all of us are doing right now, every Sunday. That makes you a Christian. For some, it, it means holding repressive views or outmoded ideas of gender and sexuality. And others would say it means accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior. What, what would you say if I ask you, what, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, I think sometimes the, the diversity of views out there can cause us to wonder if if following Jesus is, well, kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. If you're familiar with those books, I read plenty of them growing up. You know, maybe you think, my parents had to decide what worked for them when it came to Jesus and spiritual things, and now I have to decide what works for me. It's kind of choose-your-own-adventure. Here's... Here's the problem with that perspective, friend. Here's the problem. Even with all those different views and thoughts out there, here's the problem. Jesus is not silent when it comes to what he says it means to follow him. He's not silent about that. And he never releases us to decide what works for us, ever. To, to the contrary, he, he tells us exactly what it means to follow him over and over and over again. And along the way, he corrects all kinds of errant, man-centered notions, ideas that need to be cleared out along the way. And I mention that because that's, that's the whole context of Luke chapter 10. As I've said before, one of the different things in this, about this series is, unlike what we typically do when we're preaching on Sundays here, where we work through a book of the Bible front to back, we're dropping into different places. That, that has its disadvantages, and one of them is we can be unaware of the context. But, but here's the context of Luke 10, okay? At the end of chapter 9, a series of people come to Jesus three of them actually, as he's journeying toward Jerusalem to lay down his life for the sin of the world, fueled by holy love. And the first one says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm with you, man. And he says back to him, it won't be easy or comfortable. It's going to mean living as an exile. That this world and all the stuff in it will no longer be your home. Are, are you willing to give that up and follow me? Well, then the second person comes along and, and says he first needs to honor some cultural expectations by burying his dad, which was a Jewish tradition that lasted typically about a whole year. And to him, Jesus replies, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Does that strike you as harsh? Well, wait for the final God. (laughs) He says, I will follow you, Lord. I will. But first, I need to say some goodbyes to my family. What does Jesus say to him? He says, following me takes priority over even the good things in life. Family included. What what are all these professing followers doing, friends? All three of them. As we approach Luke 10, they're, they're all trying to to integrate Jesus into a life they control instead of completely handing over the reins of their life to him. Those are different. They're not following Jesus. They're asking Jesus to follow them. They're negotiating. And Luke perceives the problem. And so at the very outset of chapter 10, he records a time when when the Lord told a much larger group, 72 in fact, here's what it looks like to follow me. Here's what it looks like. Following Jesus means being sent out to do his work in his name with his authority. That's the message of Luke 10. What's it look like to follow Jesus? It means being sent out to do his work, first thing, in his name, second thing, with his authority. That there are no alternatives to that, as we're about to see, that there are no exception clauses to that. Jesus requires exclusive devotion to his mission. He he is not one who approaches us and says, I'd like to offer you a lifestyle option to integrate into your other priorities. He says, follow me. Highest priority. Governing priority. Let's look at each one of these briefly. First, we're sent to do his work. Verses 1 to 12. We are sent to do his work. In verse 1, if you look there, we read, Luke tells us, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two. In case you're wondering, they're called others. Why? What are these others? Because Jesus already sent his original 12 disciples on a nearly identical mission at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. So what's that tell us? The 12 get sent The 72 gets sent. What's the point? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a sent one. By definition. In other words, there is no category in Scripture ever for someone who is following Jesus but not personally engaged in his mission. You won't find that. Neither neither the original 12 nor the 72 are exceptions to the rule. They are the rule, friends. Because to be a Christian is to be sent by Christ himself to do something. It's who we are. It's, It's our identity as his followers. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are what? Someone Christ has sent. It's your identity. And notice in verse 1, even before Jesus clarifies what his followers are sent to do, how they're sent into 
every town and place where he himself was about to go. Don't miss that. What, what, is, what is Luke reminding us of? That our labor isn't separated from Jesus' labor. It's not. Where, where we are sent, Jesus goes. Where we are working, he is working. We're, we're participating in what Jesus himself is doing. That makes all the difference. So what sort of work is needed? Well, well Jesus tells us in verse 2. He, he describes the men and women and children he has chosen to draw to himself with this image of a, of a spiritual harvest, which we have to work a little bit more to understand than the original recipients of this gospel, Luke's gospel, because most of us think as Many young children would say, where does food come from? It comes from Kroger. (laughs) Well, picture fields, even if you've never seen them personally, maybe you've seen them on National Geographic or a, a book you read or something. Picture fields brimming with full ears of grain. Full ears waiting to be gathered. Picture of what? Men, women, and children waiting, just waiting for someone to tell them about Jesus. To explain how he's made a way for sinners to come home to God. Just waiting. Do you think of the world that way, Christian? Do you think of it that way? The unbelieving world, I I think we tend to assume that the harvest is meager and limited and hard to find, frankly. We, we assume it's, it's not time. They won't listen. They won't understand. They'll be repelled by my awkwardness. They'll have questions I can't answer. Why even bother? <laughs> They certainly won't repent and believe. You realize Jesus' perspective is the entire opposite of that? (laughs) Total opposite. He sees a plentiful harvest. What's that? The kind of field any reaper would gladly enter. Why? Because there's guaranteed fruitfulness. That's the point of the picture. It's, It's so plentiful, in fact, that the only obstacle is finding enough laborers to actually gather it. The question is not, is it there? But are there laborers who will go? Unless we let ourselves off the hook here, let's be clear. By laborers, Jesus isn't just talking about full-time missionaries. I've kind of heard this passage taught that way before. That's not true in a limited sense, because every Christian is a laborer, right? Every disciple, what did I say earlier, is a sent one. There's nobody Jesus appoints to follow him that doesn't get sent. It's not like you say, well, you know, I'm sort of interested in following you, Jesus. Okay, well, would you like to be sent? Not really. Okay, well, then you can do this. No, no, everyone gets sent. So when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, he He isn't primarily saying we need more Christian missionaries to go to Bangkok. He's saying the world needs more Christians, period. Because the number of people ready and waiting to be led home to God is so vast. So 
So what does Jesus send the 72 and us out to do? What are we sent out to do? Four things, okay? To summarize what he's saying here, we're going to move quickly. First, it's a work of prayer. If we're sent to do his work, what are the characteristics of this work? First, it's a work of prayer. Look at verse 2. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So remember what I just said. Every Christian is a laborer, so we pray what? Lord, would you draw more men and women to yourself, God, that they might labor in your field? As as Daryl Bach observes, one of the results of a mission is that more people take responsibility for it. That's right. Exactly right. So it's a work of prayer. Second, it's a work of going. Let's just linger here for a minute. Notice how the 72 Jesus appoints, look at verse 3 here, immediately become, I love this, the answer to their own prayers. (laughs) Do you catch that? I wonder how many of them, okay, pray. All right, we can pray. Wait a second. You're not, oh, he is, (laughs) right? Verse three, behold, I am sending you out. You're sending us out? Yeah. That might mean going out for coffee with a friend and initiating a spiritual conversation or studying God's word like Priya shared earlier. It might mean going down the hallway to talk with an angry child who has major issues with God's authority. It might mean going across the foyer on a Sunday morning like this to, to befriend an adult who comes to church but doesn't know Jesus. Don't assume everybody in this building on a Sunday morning is a Christian friend. But let let me challenge you here on this work of going. I've been praying for this to church. The the Joshua Project estimates that there are over 7,000 unreached people groups in the world today. 7,000 of them. That's not people. That's whole groups of people that do not have a viable Christian witness in their midst enabling them to ever hear about Jesus. Many of them, if you said, do you know who Jesus is? They they reply, who's Jesus? They just don't know. Because there's nobody remotely connected to them who knows. So have you ever prayed, Lord, are you sending me my family, to them? Have you ever even prayed that or asked? Lord, do you you want me to go to them? I think something is really wrong. Something is missing in our affection and loyalty to King Jesus if we never even ask that question, does that make sense? If we just say, Lord, I'll follow you, but that's off limits. And as you pray, and notice the call to pray here is not an invitation, it's a command in verse two. 
as we pray, as you pray, friend, if the Spirit stirs a desire for cross-cultural missions in your heart, even if the idea, or even as you maybe hear me talking about this, your heart rate's going up and you're just thinking, absolutely not, Lord, I am scared to death. If the Spirit begins to stir that in your heart, you just wonder about that. Come and talk to one of our pastors. Okay, come and talk to me. I'm not going to say, ah, I've been praying for you, soul. We got one for the nations. No. No, okay, let's talk, right? Let's pray. Let's, Let's go to God together. Let's seek the Lord together. But let's not make our working assumption at King's Way. Praise God, he calls other people to go. Let's not do that. It's a work of going, always. Third, it's a work of dependence. Work of dependence. Look back at verse three here. There's so much in this passage. Just imagine the the mix of bewilderment and I think concern, to put it mildly, that must have filled their hearts when Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as what? Lambs in the midst of wolves. Say what, Lord? (laughs) Are, Are you saying that you are? The the spiritual forces arrayed against us are like a predator at the top of the food chain? Yes. And are you saying that I'm no better off than a dumb, defenseless sheep? Yes. (laughs) Well, what kind of offensive strategy is that, Lord? (laughs) What kind of strategy is that? I mean, that, that feels like it's going to be about as successful as sending the Midlothian Wee football team out to play the LA Rams. You know, no holes barred. I mean, it's just, what? Does this even make sense? Friends, it makes a lot of sense the moment we realize that that's a strategy that testifies to the singular power of the great shepherd. That's what it is. Lambs in the midst of wolves isn't insanity. From from human wisdom it is, but not from God's perspective because it's a strategy designed to strengthen our dependence on the Lord. Look at verse four. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Don't, Don't locate your confidence in your going, in other words, in your preparation or in the provision you bring to the table or or your smarts, or your ability to answer all the questions, or your vast financial resources, or your people skills, or fill in the blank. Trust me to provide for your needs and to use my people to do it. Even if that's financial, material needs. Because the work of going that Jesus calls you to do, me to do, may very well require laboring as a full-time vocational missionary just like the 72, financially supported by other Christians. That's the picture here, right? And I would like to say, as an American who loves my independence, that is not an easy thing to think about that. We find our identity and our ability to make our own money, don't we? feels like the measure of a man or a woman. But yet the Lord clearly in this passage says, depending on his people is not something to avoid or despise. 
It'll force you to depend on the Lord. And if God calls you to that kind of going, listen, let me comfort and encourage you. This is what Jesus is saying to the 72 here. You really can trust the Lord to provide for your needs. You really can. Whether the work you devote yourself to is full-time or not, you can trust God to provide. Work of dependence. Finally, it's a work of proclamation. We're sent to do his work. The final characteristic of that, it's a work of proclamation. Look at verse 9. What does Jesus tell him to do? Pray, to go, to depend, to proclaim. Verse 9, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Guys, I'm empowering you to care for their physical bodies. To, To give them a tangible sign as I heal them through you that the new age of God's blessing has dawned. But don't stop there. Don't stop there because the peace they most need and you most need and the world most needs isn't peace in our bodies, it's peace in our souls. It's the peace of restored relationship with God. So tell them, 72, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? Well, remember the 72 were sent where Jesus, verse one, was what? Himself about to go. He's about to show up there. Wherever they're going, he's about to show up. And what happens when Jesus arrives? He he brings the kingdom of God to pass. Now, let's be clear. That's not just him showing up in a physical sense. What what is the kingdom of God? That's a term all kinds of Christian churches can just banter around. Here's the definition, biblical definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule over his people. That's what it is. We enter the kingdom of God. Jesus brings the kingdom of God to pass by bringing men, women, and children under his redemptive rule. But, you know, living on on this side of the cross, he has yet to die at this point in Luke. We we don't say like John the Baptist in Luke 1 or the 72 in Luke 10, listen, the kingdom of God has come near. We say what? The kingdom of God has come. It's come. That's not me being tricky word police. That's That's a critical difference. Why? Because Jesus has brought it to pass, friend, by dying our death so we could receive his life. He accomplished that through his life, his death, his resurrection. So the the question now is not, has the kingdom of God come? But are you, are we willing to enter it or not? Or are you willing to turn away from sin and trust and obey Jesus? That's that's the message we proclaim. That's the response we lovingly urge everyone we know to choose. And yet, notice this, our response to Christ's kingdom, our response to the kingdom he has brought to pass and is even now bringing people into, no matter how ignorant or unbelieving our response is, cannot change the fact that his kingdom will prevail. Look at verse eight. To those who receive Jesus, verse eight, trust him to make them right with God, to bring them into relationship with God under his redemptive rule. The 72 are supposed to say what? The kingdom of God has come near to you. 
It's personal. If you're trusting, following, obeying Jesus, you're part of that kingdom. You're under his redemptive rule. But to those who refuse to listen, Jesus instructs them to say what? Verse 11. Know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Not near to you, but near nonetheless. Why? Because history continues marching, friends, to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why it's come near, even if it has not come near to you. The work Jesus sends us to do is not preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Don't ever buy into that. That's nonsense. Proclamation is essential here. We're sent to speak by definition. Not whatever we feel like saying, not whatever political perspective we feel like rebuking, not whatever cultural attitude or sin we most want to rant against. (laughs) We're sent to speak what Jesus has told us to say. What's that? Here's how you find life in the kingdom of God. That's the message. And if you hear me say that and you think, I'm not even sure how how I could succinctly like explain the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done to accomplish salvation for mankind. I'm not sure if you put me on the spot, Matthew, I could ever do that. You know, I'm teaching the final week in our um, membership class this Sunday. Being in the class doesn't make you a member of the church, but it's a step on that road. If that's something God's calling you to. And one of the questions I ask in the interviews and conversations I have, hint, hint, for those of you in the class, After the class is I say, hey, explain the gospel to me in 60 seconds. Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? 60 seconds ago. That is something every Christian should be able to do. And if you're not sure how to do that, don't be ashamed or think, I'm running from that interview as fast as I can, okay? Stop by the bookshop today. I have these on order. I've got one English sample waiting for you there. And pick up a free copy of a little booklet called Two Ways to Live. Okay, this is not like the Bible's inspired and the book, book, booklet's inspired. No, this contains God's word. But it's a fantastic, simple explanation of what Jesus has done to make a way for us to come into his kingdom. We're called to proclaim. And we have it in English and in Spanish. So whether it's through prayer, through going, through dependence, proclamation, we're sent to do his work. That's the point. And we don't get to pick which one of those we're interested in. If you're a Christian, we're all sent to do his work, which means praying, depending, going, proclaiming. Second, we're not just sent to do his work. We're sent in his name. Looking here at verses 13 to 16, we're, we're sent in his name. I wonder if you noticed when Eric was reading that the Lord has some pretty stern words for those who reject his message proclaimed through his people. Pretty stern words. Look at verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom was, if you're not familiar with it, the epitome 
of wickedness in the Old Testament. If, if outward rebellion against God is a hill, Sodom is king of the hill. That's the picture. But people living in Sodom never heard the gospel that we know of. It's Jesus' point here. No, no one ever proclaimed to them good news of forgiveness of sins and relationship with God in Jesus' name. But in contrast, here's his point. All the towns, villages, the 72 here in Luke 10 visited, they all heard the gospel. So Chorazin heard the gospel. Bethsaida heard the gospel. Even, even Capernaum had heard the gospel. They, they'd all witnessed the mighty works of healing and demonic deliverance confirming Jesus' power to save. So why does he say then that it will be more bearable for the residents of Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon on the day of judgment than for the residents of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? Here's why. Here's the point. With greater revelation comes greater responsibility. With greater revelation comes greater responsibility. God, God, friends, please hear this, does not owe anyone a hearing of the gospel. Don't don't make that your opening assumption because it's not true. God doesn't owe anyone a hearing of the gospel. Why? Because none of us deserve mercy. We are not owed mercy. That's like saying jumbo shrimp. (laughs) We're not owed mercy. It's impossible. By definition, it's not receiving what you deserve. But, But when in the mystery of his will, The Lord reveals mercifully the the truth of the gospel through the ministry of his people. There's what? A corresponding increase in our moral responsibility to repent and believe. That's what Jesus is saying. To, To whom much is given, in other words, much is required. And I and I want let me specifically speak here to those of you that are growing up in this church. Or have grown up in church, period. Okay? Don't count yourself out if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s. If you've grown up in the church, hear me on this. The way you respond to what Christian parents, leaders, pastors have been teaching you is true about Christ for decades is the measure of your response to God. It's a big deal. You might say to yourself, I'm good with God, but, but I just got an issue with all, what all these authority figures in the church tell me about him. Friend, here's Jesus' point. The way you respond to his messengers is the way you respond to him. It's the same thing. It's two sides of the same coin. Look at verse 16. The one who hears you, speaking to the 72, hears me, Jesus says. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me, God the Father. Why is Jesus saying that? To to embolden us, to embolden the 72 as his followers. Guys, you're my representatives. I'm sending you in my name. and, And people will answer to me for the way they respond to you. 
So, so don't hold back, guys. Don't, don't be timid. Remember, their battle is with the Lord. And don't be surprised or, or take it too personally. If you get caught in the crossfire, you, you will be rejected and scorned for my namesake. But know this, that the gospel you proclaim is not a take it or leave it kind of message. It's, it's not one option in a religious marketplace of ideas. Jesus is the only way, friend. The only truth. And, and a day is surely coming. This is why Jesus could say this to them. When you, we, will be vindicated in the eyes of the watching world. A, a day what? When, when every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So what does that free us to not have to do as sent ones? Well, we don't have to win every argument. You realize that? Because where this whole mission is going, Christ himself has secured. We're free to not have to win every argument, to simply say what Jesus has told us to say and leave the results to him. Why? Because he's got your back, Christian. (laughs) To put it bluntly, you don't have to vindicate yourself in this life. Jesus has got your back. He will vindicate you. You might die before you see that. But it's surely coming. To rest in that. We're sent to do his work. We're sent in his name. Finally, we're sent with his authority. Verses 17 through 20. Sent with his authority. When the 72 come back, look at verse 17, they, they rejoice, which is another way of saying they got really, really, really excited about something, <laughs> okay? Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What's that about? Well, as, as they healed the sick, as they proclaimed the kingdom of God, they, they discovered To their amazement, the Lord had also given them power to deliver his people by casting out evil spirits. Look at verse 18. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Brothers and sisters, I hope you realize when when Jesus sends us out to do his work, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. By definition, always, every time. Because when I say spiritual warfare, I I do not mean a a periodic experience of encountering someone who is demon-possessed. Whenever, every single time, to a kid, to an adult, to a family member, to a perfect stranger, whenever we proclaim the truth about Jesus, we are always contending with spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Every time. Because behind all human opposition to Jesus, there there lurks another face. The face of Satan. The evil one himself. And throughout scripture, his power and reign are are represented, symbolized by by creatures like serpents, scorpions. So think of the serpent who who first tempted 
Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. But you know, the Lord promised something else in Genesis 3. He promised a day when the offspring of the woman would arise and crush the head of that serpent. He'll bruise your heel, sorely harassed, but you're going to crush his head. 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did Jesus do that? Well, through the saving power of his life, his death, his resurrection, he shattered Satan's ability to accuse and condemn the people of God. He shattered that. His, his power to accuse us, to condemn us, both, both our own conscience and before the throne of God. So where Satan once whispered, guilty, Christ now shouts, forgiven. And because Jesus also fills us with the Spirit, the Apostle John assures us in 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So yes, Christian, if you're a, a sent one, you are engaged in a cosmic struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. But please hear this loud and clear. You are never an underdog. You're not. I love cheering for underdogs in sports. Christian, when it comes to the cosmic battle you are engaged in, you are never an underdog because your opponent has been resoundingly defeated through the power of the gospel. So you need not fear. Don't be afraid that he's going to find a way to score in the final 13 seconds of the game. Okay? As the hymn we sing declares, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. So when Jesus declares in verse 18, look there, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's picking up on the language prophets in the Old Testament used in places like Isaiah 14, 12, to describe the destruction of the evil one, of Satan, his demise. The day his power was broken decisively. And the Apostle John uses the same image to describe what happened to Satan when the Son of God died and rose again. Revelation 12, verse 7, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Where has he been thrown? Down. Very clear. Not in heaven, down. No more accusing. No more status in the courtroom of God. Out. Down. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God had done so for thousands of years. Until he got thrown down. And they have conquered him by what? Listen, the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. 
Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you share in the authority of the serpent crusher as you go. Through, through the blood of the lamb, we what? We silence the voice of condemnation. That voice may even include this thought. I'm a terrible goer. I'm a terrible prayer. Why even bother? Why even try? I'm awful at this. The blood of the lamb silences that voice of accusation, condemnation. And we conquer him through what? The word of our testimony. What's that? Our declaration of the gospel. That's how we conquer the kingdom of darkness. Why? Because the Lord uses us to rescue men Women from slavery to Satan and lead them into the kingdom of his beloved son. So are we, are we sorely oppressed by Satan along the way? Absolutely. But will you ever be eternally harmed? It's not possible, Christian. It's not because those who take refuge in Christ and devote themselves to his work, what's true about them? Look at the end of verse 19. You couldn't be more secure. In the final analysis, what's true? Nothing shall hurt you. Nothing will. Following Jesus means being sent out to do his work, his name, his authority. But you know, the Lord knows our hearts in all this. As always, he knows my heart. He knows our temptations. What are we tempted to do as we are sent out in his name, with his authority to do his work? What are we tempted to do? Well, in my experience, I'm tempted to make the work I do for God the essence of my identity and the ground of my joy rather than the work God has done for me. Does that make sense? Verse 20, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Is Jesus saying it's wrong to love the thrill, because it is a thrill, of doing his work in his name with his authority? Is that wrong? Don't you go enjoying that. (laughs) No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying our greatest joy shouldn't come from the authority Jesus has given us, but from the overwhelming mercy Jesus has shown us. That's what he's saying. We, we do not deserve to share in his victory. Participate in his mission. Speak on his behalf. It, it is all a gift of grace which will keep us humble in our proclaiming and going and praying and repenting. We have to really take care, Kingsway, especially when we're diligently embracing his mission for our life. That your focus, our focus, remains on his work, not ours. Always. I love how Daryl Bach says it, that the greatest blessing is not their power, but their position. They're securely connected to God. To, To be securely related to God means what? Despairing of finding life in yourself by keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules. It means holding fast to Jesus as the only one who can forgive your sins and and give you a heart that's actually willing and able to follow the Lord. In other words, embracing Christ's mission starts with embracing Christ. Don't forget that. 
So trust him to save you. Trust him to empower you. Trust him to use you in ways you never dreamed possible as you choose to follow him. Why do I exhort you to do that? Because no adventure in this world is better than the adventure of following King Jesus. You won't find one. And I've been on a lot of them in some crazy places. (laughs) Don't, Don't waste your life by numbing your soul with endless hours of streaming curated video content every night of the week. That's a waste of a life. Because Jesus offers you the joy of knowing him and the unspeakable privilege of being used by him to bring sinners home. What is Disney Plus in comparison to that? Are you kidding me? Lord Jesus, we so need your help. We so need your help because we quickly forget the staggering privilege, the satisfying privilege, the the life joy-giving privilege of being sent to do your work in your name with your authority. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to humbly and honestly assess where have we written out in our love of comfort, our love of ease, our love of secure things in this life, any calling to go. Lord, help us as a people to bring all of our life and all of our abilities and all of our stuff and all of your money, because we don't own any of it, to you and say morning after morning, Lord Jesus, send me again. Send me again. Or make us a people who never lose sight of the priority to go. We pray in your name. Amen.